Matthew chapter 1. Uh, Matthew chapter 1, we're, we're beginning a new series, as I mentioned earlier. Um, I think it's good to, to state at the, the beginning of a series, um, I'll, I'll try and remember to do it a, a couple of times uh, throughout as well, but um, I have no original thoughts. So everything that you, you hear, I've gotten from somewhere else, and I don't always go through a sermon citing each, each and every one, but um, one of the... One of the commentaries I'm using quite a lot for this is uh, one from uh, a man named uh, Frederick Dale Bruner. Uh, and so if you hear uh, or, or ever happen to read that commentary and you go, Rob said that and he didn't cite his sources, I'm citing them now. Uh, there's a few others that I use as well. And so if you, if you go, uh, you know, Rob, you, you didn't cite this one either. Well, that's because I'm, I'm kind of citing a blanket citing of, of everything so we don't have to stop and footnote every, every bit of the sermon. Um, but Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 1. Now th- this is a, 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 a gospel that Matthew's written to uh, what's lar- by and large a, a first century Jewish uh, audience. Uh, and he's, he's taken this from, from eyewitness accounts. So he, he was a guy who, who knew all of the apostles uh, very well, and he would have uh, gone around and, and gotten to know them, spent a good bit of time with them, uh, and these were the things that, that they, they knew about Jesus, the things they'd seen and they'd heard and experienced. So Matthew 1, uh, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to read the whole, the whole chapter. And this is God's word. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king, And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shiltiel, and Shiltiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathen, and Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, 
Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forevermore. About a week or two ago, a man named Kevin Strickland was released from prison in America. He'd been there for for 42 years uh, after being convicted of murder and and sentenced to stay in prison for the rest of his life. Uh, He was in a a late teen when he was first locked away. He'd always claimed that that he had had been nowhere near the scene of the crime, that he was home watching television at the time of the incident. 42 years later, he he walked out of prison when when one of the witnesses uh, recanted her testimony and said she she, she hadn't actually seen him that night. Now, can you imagine spending 42 years in prison for something you didn't do? Could you imagine sitting there waiting and longing to be released? Strickland said that that he never thought it would happen. Uh, He had resigned himself to life in prison. So I wonder, what's what's the longest you've ever waited for something? I'd expect that for most of us, not not that long. Probably not even as long as, as Kevin Strickland waited uh, to be released from prison. Well, Matthew's Gospel, uh, he, he recounts here at the, the very beginning the, the story of, of, of a people who had longed for 2,000 years for their Savior, for a Messiah. And you get the sense from it, this, this intergenerational longing, this, this longing that, that had been there for, for so long that, that they began to, began to think it wasn't going to happen. You see, that's the, that's the thing about longing. That's the thing that we see in the, the history of God's people. And, and it's something that we see a bit in the, the story of Kevin Strickland, that, that over time, longing shifts, doesn't it, from, from anticipation to discouragement to, to the utter loss of hope. Most of us can relate to that feeling on some level, can't we? Uh, all of us, at some point in our lives, have, have longed for something, whether that's for our, our wedding day, like Joseph uh, in, in this passage, or, or something as simple as, as a birthday when we were a child, or, or even Christmas Day for that matter. We all know what it's, it looks, what, what it, it's, it's like to, to look forward to something, hopefully and expectantly, only to, to either lose heart along the way or to find that, that thing that we had longed for, that thing we had hoped for and were so excited about, only left us empty after a time. And sadly, that's how longings work. And it's all part of, of, of life in this, in this world. And that's why Christmas is actually so incredible, isn't it? And it's so wonderful because we, we hear in our passage this afternoon is that our, our ultimate longings have been met in the child born in a stable 2,000 years ago. What Matthew tells us in this, this list of names and in and, and Joseph's story is that that. Uh, God's people who have been enslaved to their sin for, for generations, forever, are being set free by God's Son entering into our world. And it would have been unbelievable, wouldn't it, if we didn't have the eyewitness testimony of, of the events themselves. 
What I hope we will see this, this evening is, is just how badly we need Christ. And therefore, just how wonderful this child, Jesus, is. And there's, there's three things for us to see uh, today. First of all, the messiness of longing. Secondly, the, the heartache of longing. And thirdly, the, the joy of longings filled. So first of all, the messiness of longing. On, on first glance, this, this list of names is, 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 is uh, really long and really boring. And if you didn't notice, it was really hard to read. However, for, for the original audience that Matthew was, was writing this to, who, who would have, who would have uh, heard it read or, or read it themselves, this would have been an incredibly significant list of names. In ancient Near Eastern culture, where you come from, well, well, where you came from, really, where you come from, uh, where, where you came from mattered. Often you would simply be known as the son of so-and-so or the child of, of this person. And this is still the case in, in lots of places around the world. Uh, even in our, our own culture here, here in London, uh, where we come from has, has significance. And there's, there's ways that we work that out, aren't there? Uh, there's, there's identity markers that people look for to determine how to, how to place us. For example, my accent tells you that I'm from somewhere in North America. Most people hope it's Canada. It's not. Uh, but that's okay, right? I'm 50% I'm British now that I have dual citizenship. Uh, I find, I've even found it interesting that, that one of the, the slightly controversial aspects of, of the BBC uh, was how historically they, they trained their newsreaders to have a certain accent. Or maybe it was they, they only looked for newsreaders who had a certain accent. Now they, now they want them to, to, to be proud of having, say, a, a, a Yorkshire accent or, or some other accent because we, we celebrate that, that kind of diversity and that difference. Uh, and that different backgrounds are, are a good thing. But, but you know, where, where we come from matters, doesn't it? It, it says something about who we are. And, that, and so what, what exactly is Matthew doing with this, this list of names? Well, he's laying out exactly who Jesus is and exactly where he comes from. He's laying out this, this genealogy, this lineage of, uh, and, and what he, he has to say here would, would actually have been jaw-dropping for the first century Jews who would have read this account. And I don't intend to go through uh, every single one of these names one by one. You're welcome. Uh, what I want to do is to, to help us see uh, uh, Matthew's main point with this list. And his main point is, is really that, that all the promises of God for 2,000 years are fulfilled in Jesus. And because all of those, those, those promises are, 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 are fulfilled, then, then all the messiness, all the evil and suffering of the past, present, and future, even though while, they, while, they, while they're still painful, the one thing that, that they are not is, is meaningless. In other words, because God has kept his promises in Jesus, then all the longings and, and disappointments that we suffer have a purpose to them. Now, where do we see that in these verses? Well, first we see the promises still stood in Jesus' day. Notice the way that, that Matthew structures this, this list of names in verse 17. He says that, that all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, if you're, if you're a Bible scholar, then some of the aspects of this list and its, its structure will, will create some questions for you. Um, I won't answer those in this sermon, uh, because that's not the purpose of the sermon but you can ask me about them afterwards. What you need to notice in the structure 
It's how it actually is built around the promises of God. So Matthew begins with Abraham, who God promised would be the father of many nations, and that all the nations of the world would be blessed through his offspring. And through, through the, this first 14 generations, the, the promises of God stood, didn't they? You could look back on that, that first 14 generations, and you see, uh, what do you see? You see God uh, staying with his, his, his people, uh, even as they're in slavery in Egypt. And then he brings them out of Egypt, and he brings them to the promised land. Then, he brings, then, then Matthew brings us to the, the era of the kings of Israel, beginning with King David. And David was the, the greatest king of Israel and a man after God's own heart. To David, God promised, uh, as we read last week in our Old Testament reading in the, the prophet Jeremiah, that there would always be a ruler on David's throne, that David's children would reign uh, eternally. And through this time, the, the promises of God to, to Abraham and to David stood. Then we see in verse 12 the, the deportation or the, the captivity of God's people in Babylon. They had rebelled against God and God allowed them to be subjected to invasion by pagan nations who, who oppressed them and, and carried them off and, 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 and enslaved them. And Matthew's whole point in recounting this is that even earthly captivity doesn't negate the promises of God. The promises of God carried on and were still valid up to this, this moment in history when Jesus comes onto the scene. The promises still stood 2,000 years later, but if you, were, if you were there, you might be forgiven for not believing it. 2,000 years is a ridiculously long period of time, isn't it? We've lived nearly 2,000 years since Christ's first coming. And it became hard for God's people to keep the faith over, over that time, didn't it? It's hard to keep faith in something over a few months or, or years, much less 2,000. And Matthew doesn't pretend like it was easy, does he? He doesn't pretend like there, it was smooth sailing the whole time. There's actually three major markers of, of just how messy things got. There's actually way more than that. Pretty much every one of these is a marker of how messy it got. I'm choosing three just for the sake of time. The first is in verse 3, when Matthew mentions Judah, the father of Perez and, and Zerah by Tamar. Now, if you're not familiar with, with this story, it can be found in Genesis 38. Uh, Judah's the, the great-grandson of Abraham, uh, so just a, a few generations removed from, from, you, from, from the promises made to Abraham. Tamar was his daughter-in-law, uh, and each of his, his sons died in succession. And in the ancient Near East, if, if a son died without, uh, without having children, without having offspring, then the, the, the next brother would, would marry the, the first wife so that he could provide offspring for the first. And so one by one, each of Judah's sons died without Tamar conceiving until Judah decided to, to withhold his youngest son from her. So Tamar gets, gets desperate for a child. And so she dresses as a prostitute and sits by the side of the road until Judah comes along. And not recognizing her, he, he sleeps with her. And she becomes pregnant with, with twins, Perez and Zerah. Now, that's not the Christmas story you expected to hear when you turned up this evening, is it? It's, uh, it, it's pretty dysfunctional, that. It's messy. But what, what Matthew has to say to us this evening is that, that Judah and Perez and Tamar were all part of Jesus' story. And then you have King David, the one who God made a, a really big promise to. Notice, notice what it says about him in verse 6. David was the father of Solomon, 
by the wife of Uriah. Now what's that about? Most of you probably are, are familiar with this, this story. David was up on his roof one day uh, while all the fighting men of his kingdom were, were off at war where David should have been. And he sees Uriah's wife Bathsheba bathing and he, he lusts after her and he sleeps with her. And she gets pregnant, which is a big problem for David. So he has Uriah killed in the battle. And then he, he takes Bathsheba for his wife. Eventually, she, she gives birth to Solomon, the next king of Israel. Again, that's not the Christmas story you expected to hear when you turned up this afternoon, is it? Yet, once again, Matthew tells us that David and Bathsheba, and even to a certain extent Uriah, are part of Jesus' story. Third, you have the people who are, are being carried off into captivity, into slavery. They had forsaken the one true God who had made promises to Abraham all those years ago. They lost faith. They lost their hope. They'd stopped believing the promises would ever, would ever be fulfilled. So like all of us, they, they turned to idols. They turned to the, the things of this world who, that, that, that promised to, to make them whole but in the end would leave them broken and in slavery with their identity and their humanity stripped away. Again, not the Christmas story you expected to hear when you turned up this afternoon. Yet Matthew tells us the promises still stood, that God was still faithful to his people. That's Matthew's whole point. The, the promises of God to his people were still valid, that the judgments of, of God is, is never the final word when it comes to those who, who he set his love upon. God held his people together and he, he brought them to this moment in history when we meet this man, Joseph. Now perhaps you can relate to the messiness of, of longing that we see in this list. Or perhaps there's things in your own life that, that you'd rather no one knew about. Perhaps you wonder whether God's promises are for you. In fact, the the genealogy before us is not, not only to, to point to the fact that Jesus comes through the, the promises of God, but that the people of promise, God's people, are punctuated by, by moral and, and racial outsiders. These were the, the kind of people that, that the Jews of Jesus' day would never want to touch. You see uh, uh, four women mentioned, mentioned in, this, uh, in, in this genealogy. Uh, women were not highly thought of in Jesus' day. And not only that, but the, these women would have been foreigners. Yet they're part of Jesus' story. The outsiders are being brought in to God's kingdom. These stories I, I've just outlined for you are, are really unvarnished pictures of the very people Jesus came to save because they're the very people that God loves. And they're people like you and I. And the reason this, this happens is because in the background of this list of fathers is actually the great father, isn't it? It's God the Father who moved and worked in, in all of the messiness of, of 2,000 years of history of this, this rebellious, ragtag people holding them together and, and, and calling them to himself even amidst sin and brokenness and slavery. And this father, God the Father, was, was about to do something great in the lives of his people. He was about to, to keep that promise he made to Abraham so long ago that his offspring would be a blessing to all the world. Because God the Father was about to send his son. 
And this is where we meet Joseph. And the narrative kind of pulls us into the individual moment, this one man, the, the man where the genealogy ends, Joseph. In Joseph, we see our, our second point this evening, uh, the heartache of, of longing. Look at verses 18 and 19. Perhaps it's, it's difficult for us to, to relate to this list of names. I think it's, it's probably much easier for us to relate to this man, Joseph, isn't it? What does Matthew tell us about Joseph? He tells us three, kind of four things, really, that he's engaged to Mary, that, that Mary's pregnant, and it's not Joseph's child, that Joseph was a, a just man, that he was a good and moral man, and that he wanted to, to treat Mary well despite the circumstances they found themselves in. Now, this was a young man, Joseph, who was anticipating marriage to, to this, his young bride, Mary, and all the things that marriage has to, to offer to a young couple. Plans, plans were made. Dreams were dreamt. Most of all, I believe that, that there was a real love between this couple, these two people. But there was a big problem. Mary was discovered, we're told by Matthew, to be pregnant. And one of the things, uh, uh, one thing that, that Joseph was certain of, and that scripture was really clear about, was that this was not his baby. Now, could you imagine the heartache of that? All of the, the hopes and dreams and, and all of the, the love that you had had poured into this, this other person only to, to feel that it had been wasted on a person who appears to be unfaithful to you. Can you imagine the heartache of that? Some of you, maybe you don't need to, to imagine it. You've felt that, that sort of pain yourself. You know quite keenly the pain and heartache of the longings that seem about to be fulfilled by someone or something only to be let down in the very end. See, what Joseph was experiencing, what you and I experience every day, is what, what Matthew says the whole of God's people experienced for 2,000 years. The messiness and heartache of trying to, to scrape out a meaningful life in a world that, that takes even the, the beautiful things, something like, like a marriage between a young couple, and turns it into something, something ugly and broken. And so we have a life full of disappointment and heartache that sometimes hurts so much that it, it threatens to undo us, doesn't it? And the whole point of this, this opening chapter of Matthew's gospel and the whole point of the, the Advent season is, is that, that God takes the, the messiness and the heartache of our lives and turns it into, into something beautiful. He redeems it. And our problem is that we, we are so often closed-hearted to, to a God who works this kind of redemption in us. Tim Keller points out that, that we often hear people say, uh, maybe you've heard them say this, I, I simply can't believe in a God who who allows suffering. I can't, could never believe in a God who allows evil and suffering to happen in this world. Often we'll, they, they'll suggest that maybe this is, that, that a God like this must be incompetent. That if you believe in God, you must believe in an incompetent God. Keller counters that by saying that if we, that if we say this, what we're really saying is that I don't want a God who is beyond my comprehension. That I can't believe God could have reasons for allowing evil and suffering that I can th can't think of. And if I can't think of any good reason for, for the evil and suffering, then, then there can't be any. That there couldn't possibly be a God beyond my comprehension. Now Matthew through Joseph shows us something very different. Joseph was, was prepared to make the, the best of a bad situation. He was prepared to, to walk through the heartache, but he couldn't see a re the reason for it when actually he's given a, the very best reason a reason that would bring him and, and all of us 
who trust in Jesus' great joy. And that's what we see in our third point, the, the joy of longings filled. Now, Joseph was a guy trying to do the right thing, wasn't he? He was a just man, and he wasn't going to, to cause a scene, but he was going to, to break things off with Mary quietly. But then something completely unexpected happened. A reasonable explanation was given for why Mary was pregnant. And it was given to Joseph by an angel. And the angel said, uh, uh, said that, that the child conceived in Mary was, was from the Holy Spirit. It was from God. In other words, this is a child of God himself. Now, I know some of you are thinking that that doesn't sound like a very reasonable explanation, Rob. What's reasonable about that? It sounds completely mad. An angel appears and tells him that, that this, is a, this is God's son. This is God's child. I know we're running out of time, but I, I, do, I do want to take a, a few minutes to, to just unpack these verses because I think, I think they're critical for, for understanding why our sorrow should join, turn to joy at Christmas time. Three reasons why I believe this is, this is actually a reasonable explanation for what happened to Mary given through the experience of Joseph. First of all, the actions of Joseph speak to the truth of the appearance and message of the angel. And Joseph would have been under tremendous uh, cultural, social pressure to distance himself from Mary. In fact, uh, what, what it says here, when it says he's a, he's a moral man, it means that he's, he's being sympathetic to her. Because uh, within that culture, the proper thing to do would have been to, as, as loudly as you could, denounce this pregnant, unmarried person. This is the sort of thing that, that people, mostly women, got stoned for in those days. And so for him to, to, to say, I'm going to, to quietly uh, set her aside, to, to quietly move on, was actually a, a, it showed tremendous character. This is the sort of thing that makes you a social pariah in a devoutly religious and conservative community like the first century uh, Jewish community in Israel. And so what changed? The fact that he would change his mind and, and still take, take Mary as his wife suggests that something dramatic happened, doesn't it? Joseph's response to the angel's message ought to be striking to each one of us. You see, a, a, a new pathway to love is, is open for him, isn't it? And he sacrificially takes her as, as his wife. He's obedient to, to the word of God that's, that's spoken to him through the angel. And he refrains from, from sexual relations with her until the child's born. And that's actual love, isn't it? And it's not just love for, for Mary, but love for her child and, and love for God. Why does he do it? The only reason is because something, something greater is going on here. And he recognizes that. Something greater is going on here. And that's the second thing Matthew shows us here, that something greater is, is going on here. The second thing we see is that this is the historic moment in the history of God's people. This is the moment that they've all been waiting for. This is the, uh, the moment that everything has been driving to. Matthew uh, actually ties the birth of Jesus back into the Old Testament prophets. He, he does this in several places, but this is just the first one. He, he, he does, has several of these uh, fulfillment quotations throughout his account. But this is the first one in verse 23, and he, he gives the, uh, uh, the first quote in this case from, from Isaiah 7. Verse 14, he says this, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, 
and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now this would have, this would have had a lot of weight in, in Matthew's day with the, the, the people uh, of, of Joseph and Mary's day as well. It would have at least been a, an extremely bold claim, wouldn't it? It was a life or death claim. Again, this is the sort of claim that, that would potentially get you stoned to death. Yet Matthew makes this claim and offers the evidence that, that all the promises of God are being fulfilled in the child of Mary. He says this is, this is the Messiah. He's claiming the, the lordship of Christ. At the very least, it should cause us to, to pause and take notice. Like it, it caused, caused Joseph to pause and to take notice and to change the trajectory of his life. Now, the third reason why this is, is compelling is because of the promises that, that, uh, of what Jesus will do. Now, did you notice the two names that, that would be given to Jesus uh, that Matthew mentions here? First in verse 21, you shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now, what's been the, been the problem all along? Well, it's, it's been the sins of the, the people, hasn't it? What's been causing all the messiness and heartbreak? What was the, the problem in, with, with every single person in that, that list of long names that I've, I, I, I spent several minutes reading out earlier? It was sin. What's our problem? It's the same. It's sin. Jesus promises to save his people from their sins. And he can do that. Why? Because of the second name. Because he is Emmanuel, which means God with us. He's the Christ child. He's God Incarnate. Let's be really honest for a moment. In our day and age, people people choose baby names for mind-boggling reasons, don't they? Uh, some, sometimes the, the names they choose can can make you scratch your head. I won't give any examples, but you know what I'm talking about, right? Uh, I won't even tell you. I, I won't tell you my middle name because it's a head scratcher a bit. But but the names of Jesus are bold, and they they set him apart as as one who's going to be, do incredible things. That's what actually gets us to the big question for us this evening. Who is Jesus? And understand what I mean by that is, is I'm not asking, who is Jesus to you? I'm asking, objectively speaking, based on the account of Matthew, who, who is Jesus? We have Matthew saying that, that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of our longings. That he's the one who, who fulfills uh, all of the, God's promises to his people for 2,000 years. We have Joseph being quietly obedient when he learns that the, the child that his fiance is carrying is actually the, the son of God. Emmanuel. God incarnate. God with us. The one who came to take away the sins of the world. So in light of this, you, you have to, to answer the question, don't you? Who do you say he is? And we can't play games with this, can we? We can't hedge our bets and say, well, he was a, he was a great man. He, he might have been God. Or he was a, a wise teacher who, who was inspired by God. That's not something that, that Scripture leaves open to us, is it? That's not something that Matthew actually leaves open to us. He makes the bold and direct claims that this is God incarnate. The Son of God, God with us. And you have to remember who he's talking to here. This would be an audience who, who grew up knowing the very first of the Ten Commandments, that you shall have no other God before me. And if that's true, 
then there's really no in-between when it comes to Jesus, is there? Either he's fully God and fully man, or he's just another man and should be rejected. So you cannot have half faith when it comes to Jesus. Either he is the joy of your longing heart, or he's nothing. And how you, do, how you, how you answer that determines not just, not just your, your faith and hope and love, but the, the entire trajectory of your life in eternity. Who do you say that Christ is? Is he the Son of God and the fulfillment of all your longings? Or is he just another madman that came and went? Who do you say that Christ is? Let us pray.